All right, this is uh, Kevin Evans. I am teaching the chapter-by-chapter -chapter life class at Crossroads Assembly of God. Uh, and we are currently working our way through Matthew. And today we are going to tackle chapter 12. So if you have a Bible with you, you might want to open up the scripture to chapter 12 and find every little commentary you can find to support you as you go, which is what we do as we argue about things. So uh, just to, to recap, Matthew is telling the story of Christ uh, Matthew is responding to Mark's gospel, which we can assume that Matthew has been using as he uh, preaches and administers uh, in the later years after Christ's ascension. And so he has added to Matthew's gospel and told his story because he was there. And there are things that Mark didn't know about. And, and Matthew is also preaching to a Jewish, largely, uh, readership, and he wants to emphasize things that are important to uh, persuading a Jewish audience of Christ's divinity, that he wants to show them that he is the coming Messiah that they have been waiting for. <clears throat> so, uh, in the first, uh, I think it's chapter through chapter 9, uh, we have a number of miracles in which Christ is gathering his disciples and performing miracles and preaching. And often he will perform a miracle in those chapters and tell the person that he has just healed, now don't tell anybody about this, which we thought was kind of unusual. And uh, we basically decided that what Christ was doing is controlling the hysteria of the people that are following him around. He has massive crowds. He is a rock star in ancient Israel. And thousands of people are crowding around him because he can heal them of their illnesses and injuries. And, uh, and everybody is coming out to uh, see him for that reason. Not necessarily because they think that he's the Messiah. Not because they're listening to what he's got to say. They just want him to heal them. And while healing is important, uh, Christ's reason for being on earth was not to heal people of their afflictions. It was to heal their souls and to redeem their souls. So he wants to uh, finish the job. He wants to train his apostles. He wants to uh, get the message out to Israel before uh, he eventually is taken into custody by the Pharisees and killed. And so, and, and he wants, he doesn't want that to happen too early before his disciples know what's going on. So that's why he's telling these people that he's healing occasionally, don't tell anybody, keep this under your hat, go get checked out, but don't tell anybody what happened, you know, and, uh, that's why. Now in chapter nine, uh, the apostles go solo. They, um, uh, Christ commissions them to go out two by two, and he gives them very specific instructions on how to work this mission, and they weren't to, what supplies they were to actually not take rather than take. And he sends them out to kind of see, to, to show them that they can depend upon God's providence and uh, to preach. And so he's got six different crews of two uh, preaching all around Israel, going in different directions 
to uh, spread this word. And so we have had one big hysterical revival kind of service going on with Christ with the apostles standing around kind of uh, uh, managing the people. They're out serving Christ and managing the people and telling them where to stand and passing the plate or whatever they do, you know, uh, passing out the food on two occasions. Uh, and so uh, that's what they've been doing. Now Christ has gone into Galilee uh, since he sent them all off, and he's by himself, and he doesn't have his crew with him. And we've got these other six evangelistic services going on at the same time in different parts of Israel. So we are reaching a lot of people right now, and we're not seeing what the, all of those apostles are doing while Christ is speaking. But Matthew is only reporting on Christ's uh, uh, teachings. So I assume somebody told him what, what Christ has been doing. So now that we're getting closer to the end, Christ is less worried about preparing his, you know, the way for his apostles. Now he's feeling a little more confident in challenging the Pharisees. And, uh, and he can push their buttons a little bit more because if you know, it's getting close to the end. And, and he's eventually is going to have to make this sacrifice that he knows he's going to have to make. Uh, and so in chapter 12, uh, it is, he, he directly uh, attacks Pharisees. It, 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 it's a series of exchanges between Christ and Pharisees. Uh, so before we get into chapter 1, um, we need to talk about Pharisees. They are the leaders, they're kind of uh, 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 Jewish lawyers. We'll call them Jewish lawyers. But they were, they were low-level priests, too. They were connected to the church. Uh, the law came from Moses, which was a religious document. So they had religious standing, but they weren't necessarily temple priests. They were kind of like layman priests. And their, their whole plan was to uh, administer the law of Moses and they could come to uh, a Jewish person and say, you're not following the law, we need you to change your ways because you were working on a Sunday and we can't have that. And they could actually assess fines and stuff. Right, so they were more, were more uh, uh, like church leadership. They are. They are. And in addition to the temple, you had uh, uh, um, synagogues which are kind of like little local churches, and uh, Pharisees would preach in synagogues pretty regularly. So, so it's like having a local pastor, but you have the guys at the temple that outrank him in, in almost a different class sort of way. The Sadducees are a little different than yeah. the Pharisees. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what has happened over the years is that you have these very powerful, renowned, studied rabbis who have looked at the law of Moses and I think it probably started innocently. They look at the law of Moses and say, you can't do this, this, and this. So why don't we organize our church so that th those things can't happen? And so they make a rule that's not in the book, but would keep those bad things from happening. So, uh, I don't know, uh, let's say you can't kill a rabbit. I, I don't know what the, the, the law is, but, but let's make a rule so that says that you can't bring a rabbit into the temple. If you, if you don't bring a rabbit into the temple, then there's no way that we can kill one, right? 
Well, so they make it a law, you can't bring a rabbit in the temple. Well, you know, we don't want to bring a rabbit into the temple, so let's make sure that all rabbits are outside of Jerusalem. And so let's, let's expunge all rabbits from Jerusalem. Now, the law just says don't kill a rabbit in the temple. But, but now we don't want to have them in Jerusalem. You know, it, it just extends and extends and extends until it gets really silly. And sometimes those laws contradict each other. Um, so by the time of Christ's day, there were 1,600 regulations that were all inspired by the law on record for the Pharisees. And the Pharisees enforced those regulations on daily life in Israel. And little of them had anything to do with the law of Moses. Uh, for, and often they were a little silly. For example, there is a rule that says you cannot eat an egg laid on the Sabbath because because the chicken was working on the Sabbath. And since it was late in the Sabbath, then that makes it unlawful, and you become a sinner if you eat that egg. <clears throat> then there's another law that says, oh, wait, it is lawful to eat the egg if you kill the chicken in punishment for laying the egg on Sunday. So you can either not eat the egg, or you can eat the chicken and the egg, and then it's okay, because you know you're eating the chicken. Exactly. Uh, see, and see, which is just silly. At, at what point, that, that's really not the spirit of the law of Moses. That's not about working on the Sabbath. That's, that, it's just being silly. Yeah. Uh, there was even a law that says that a woman uh, was, should not, was not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. And here's the reason. Because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. Yeah, just chew on that for a second. So we don't want to tempt those poor, weak-willed women into wanting to pull one of their gray hairs out because gray hair, pulling that out, is evidently labor, and, and we can't allow labor on the Sabbath. So in, in order to avoid pulling out your gray hair, you were to never look in a mirror on the Sabbath, which means that I guess there are a bunch of nappy-looking people on the Sabbath yeah. at, in synagogue because none of those women were allowed to look in a mirror. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just ridiculous. Now, Jesus always followed the law of Moses. At least he followed the spirit of the law of Moses. Uh, he didn't work on the Sabbath. He kept the Sabbath holy. But at the same time, uh, he didn't go nuts over all of these little rabbinical uh, side laws. And, and, and as the Pharisees were being uh, threatened by him, they kept trying to catch him in some kind of a sin. And the sins that they kept trying to catch him in were their own little regulations, which didn't really apply. And so Christ, using, I noticed, several really excellent debate techniques as he's playing with them, uh, defends against all of these uh, charges really, really well. So, Let's look at verse, we can actually get into this now. Let's go to chapter 12, verses 1 through the 14. 14? Is that where I want to go? Uh, yeah, 14. Um, so, and I'm reading from the NIV. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, 
Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrated the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? And the answer to that is yes, they would, because they've already passed a, a rule saying that uh, you should never work on the Sabbath unless it involves the life and death of something. We, you know, so if your sheep was going to die in the ditch, or you could make that claim, then pull it on out. Uh, Will you not take all of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So they're, they're, they're talking about, well, you see right there the, the, the hypocrisy here. I mean, they're talking about cat, uh holding them to this standard of holiness while they're literally in the back room plotting and how to murder him you know these are not good people they are they are they're 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 tiptoeing around the letter of the law in order to to get by i get i wonder if it's legal to murder people on if you do it in just the right way um okay unpacking this a little bit um first of all the disciples are not gathering. Uh, yesterday, I walked my dog <clears throat> around the, a, a, a barbed wire fence that surrounds a park near my house. And in that fence is uh, a mayhaw tree. You know what a mayhaw is? It's uh, the Texas version of a hawthorn berry. And it's this little apple-looking berry that's on this tree and they're only they're only ripe in may and they're kind of uh they're kind of special because you can only get them a little bit at a time and not many people have these trees and so i've been watching this mayhaw tree waiting on those berries to get red and so they were the other day so i walked by and i'm walking my dog and i noticed that they're red and i picked three of them and ate them on my walk was i harvesting mayhaw berries no no, no i was I was snacking. I was. I was snack. This was. This was light grazing, if you want to think of it that way. You know, if I'd come across a good blueberry, I'd have probably eaten that too, because I'm like that. I'm not going to let that blueberry just sit there. Anyway, um, the the Sabbath. The rule against the Sabbath means you can't harvest on the Sabbath. That means you can't go out with six people in sacks. And, and, and winnow through the wheat and gather it all up and put in an honest 10, day, 10 hours of work in, uh, of labor, that's what isn't keeping the Sabbath holy. Following Jesus and eating some grain along the way that you picked without losing pace with Christ is not gathering. 
but they're calling it because they, what they're doing is they're picking off the tops of some wheat. They're rolling it around in their hands, which is winnowing, and then they're eating it, you, you know, just off that. It, it, they might as well be chewing on weeds, you know. They're snacking because that's, that's what dudes do, you know. Uh, uh, so Christ challenges them, and he says, uh, first of all, it's not against the law for them to eat on the Sabbath. In fact, David ate the consecrated showbread in, 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 uh, in the temple. And he's, he's pulling out really old references to the Old Testament showing that, that there's a long precedence of people doing this. Also, I think it's interesting that David is kind of a type of Christ. And I, I, I think it illustrates that David is above that law. David is both king and priest, just as Christ is both king and priest. And so as a result, he can, he can eat whatever he wants to because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the son of God. You know, if God's making the rules, God can break the rules too. Not that he has. He hasn't broken the rules. He, but, you know... Um, I think it's subject to his interpretation and not theirs. Well, that that upset him. <clears throat> so he's so he, they 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 plot against him even further. They didn't get anywhere with that. They lost that argument. So they so so they set up a plan. They go to the temple because they know he's going to be at the temple, and they bring a guy with a crippled hand. This was set up, absolutely set up. This the guy with the crippled hand was not did not just happen to be there. The priest brought him in, and they wanted, because they approach him. They said, you know, there's a guy with a crippled hand. You're not going to heal him, are you? Because this is the Sabbath. They're, I mean, they're setting him up to be, to, 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 to do something wrong so that they can bring charges against him. They're trying to get rid of the guy. <clears throat> a Christ answered, if any of you fall, uh, uh, has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, and this was a lot of people listening, Will you not hold, uh, take hold of it and pull it out? But isn't a man more important than a sheep? Now, they can't argue with either of those uh, uh, assessments. You know, he's saying, first of all, you have a precedent about, you know, saving life and limb. Now, their rule was that if it's going to cost a life, even of a sheep, then you can break the Sabbath rule. Well, healing the man's withered hand was not going to cost, not healing his hand is not going to cost him his life. He could have waited until tomorrow to do that. Uh, but Christ says that people are more important than sheep, so sure, I'm going to do good on the Sabbath, and he, he, he heals his hand. Is that really labor? Is healing people labor? I guess not by Christ's estimation. Uh, so the Pharisees, because Christ has made this argument, do not have a response, and they let it go. So they've been embarrassed once again in the temple in front of Christ. Christ is actively antagonizing them at this point, and he's been avoiding this so far, but now he's on the warpath. And so they go out to plot to kill Jesus. I mean, they're, it's serious now. Uh, which brings us to verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. Oh, wait, there it is again. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then we have this quote from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So... It's kind of a nonviolent description of the Messiah. And this is the, the Messiah that all the people are waiting for, but they, they want like a military leader because there are references to that. But here, he's, he's not quarreling. And so these guys are actively challenging him when he walks into the temple. And so he's not, he, he's gone out into the will, 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 in, into the, the fields. He's, he's going back to the people. He's kind of de-escalating the situation. Now, admittedly, he challenged these guys, you know, but, but he pushed it a little further, and now they're trying to kill him. Now he's backed off. And so he's healing everybody he sees, but he's saying, keep this under your hat. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 22, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Which is to refer to the Messiah. So he's getting his message across. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, and here's where the debate techniques come in. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So he's saying, you know, if the guy is possessed of a demon, then Satan has this guy. Is Satan going to cast the demon out? No. His purpose is to get the demon in. So how would I use the power of the devil to get him out? That's not how it works. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So, if I, so, so evidently they cast out demons in the temple too. And if he's using the devil to drive them out, are they driving them out by the devil also? Huh, interesting. So then they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So then they will be your judges. Who's they? I think it's the people in the temple around them. So he's basically referring to the crowd, and he's saying, uh, you know, they're, they're judging you. Uh, if I'm not dividing it, if, if I'm not, you know, of Satan, then I've got to be of God, and it's important that God is here. So this is in debate is what is called a, a turn. You've taken their argument, and you've twisted it to support your own case. You're not counteracting their argument. You're using their argument for your own benefit. It actually, it's kind of a two-point win rather than a one-point win. 
Uh, and uh, as, since these guys are lawyers, and I assume they know something about debate, they realize that they just got stomped right there in that argument. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. And in this weird example, Christ is the strong man. Uh, uh, Christ is the man robbing the house, and uh, uh, you know because uh, he has to. It, Satan is the strong man, so he wants to hold Satan back so that he can do something to you know, so he can have his way. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be given men, but the blasphemy against spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That's an interesting paragraph that has been argued to death for years. Um, well, let me finish. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good for out of the out, uh, overflow of the heart the mouth speaks? The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But if I tell you that man will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken, but for your words you will be acquitted, and for your words you will be condemned. Well, that's heavy, man. All right. Um, so... He makes this big point about how only God and those of God can cast out a demon, and he uses that to his point. Uh, you got anything else in there? That's all my. That's all to have everything I have in my notes. What you got? Oh, okay. All right. That's kind of, that's kind of weird. That that's right there, you know, as far as that goes, about the the. The tree and its fruit good, and the the tree and the other tree and its bad fruit. Well, so to speak. it's symbolic, and he's basically saying that you judge a tree by what it produces. And if you have a plum tree that doesn't produce plums, then you cut it down because you're a farmer, and the point of that plum tree is to have plums, right? Yeah. So you're not going to keep a tree that doesn't produce. And they're, you know, they're just bad trees. Or, or when they do produce, they're undersized and they, uh, you know, they don't work out or whatever. Uh -huh. uh, so he's basically saying that if you look at people, yeah, that's just judge what them by say. what they yeah. do. Not by what yeah. they say they are, but what they do. And uh, what they do reveals who they really are. That's, so that's people, what I was just fixing People are what they yeah. do, which, which yeah. makes a pretty interesting question. You know, what do we do? How do, yeah. how do people judge us? Out of the, for out of the, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yep. Yeah. There's a comic book expression that says extraordinary people do extraordinary things. Yeah. Well, that's kind of along the same line. How do you know if somebody is extraordinary? They do extraordinary things. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. what makes them they, extraordinary. Yeah. Just things. living a normal life and not doing anything does not make you extraordinary. No. Even though you no. might have potential for it. Yeah. Okay. 
verse 38, and I'm going to read through 45. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And this was probably another trap. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Do you think that the Pharisees really wanted to see a sign that would prove to them that he was the Messiah? If God took his finger and wrote, this is the Messiah in a big contrail in the sky in Hebrew for the rabbis, they would look at that and say, this is of Beelzebub. They, they, would, they would turn it to their advantage because they saw him as a threat and they've been ordered by their bosses in the temple to go get rid of this guy. They're not there looking for the Messiah. They're there protecting their status quo. Protecting their interests. Yes. And so Christ says, why are you acting for miraculous signs? He's been laying out miraculous signs as fast as he can go for years. You know? Uh, Healing people of their diseases. He's hiding miraculous signs from them. Yes. And all everything, you know. That, you know, and I'm as cynical as they are. If I, you know, I have gone to, well, I've watched numerous healing services on television. Yeah, I've seen those, yes. Where I am not completely convinced that the minister is up and up. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I, I tend yes. to look at a lot of modern religious healing ceremonies with kind of a cynical eye. Yeah. And I, I do want to, I have seen genuine healings, but... Yeah. I'm not going to just accept it because you said so. I, I used to really annoy my wife, you know, after healing. Cause I, w- I would like to see the before and after x-rays. <laughs> Could I see the x-rays? You know, I'm sure there are. He had a broken arm and now it's remended. I want to yeah. see the two x-rays with the dates on the x-rays. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there are those kinds of miracles, yeah. you know, and, and, and I will accept that. But I'm cynical. And they are very cynical because they are protecting their own pre-arranged, pre-established position, and they're looking to make all the evidence fit that position. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he compares them to Nineveh. Now we have Nineveh was, of course, 
hard pagan city uh, that worshipped the the fish god Dagon. Battles. Yes. And Jonah was sent to to go teach them and and he didn't want to go because he hated them. And so God sent Jonah there anyway in the belly of a fish. And Jonah becomes kind of a picture of Christ, as all of the prophets often are. And he's in this belly of this fish three days and three nights, and then he gets coughed up on shore. And uh, we've studied this in depth before, and I think it's kind of a fascinating story. But uh, Jonah very reluctantly, angrily, walks into Nineveh and said, repent. And the, the scripture only records one word. They don't record his whole message. But evidently, the whole city fell down in their knees and repented with his one word. <laughs> and I have, I have all kinds of theories about why that's that way. But Nineveh repented before God. And if Nineveh, this pagan, hard city, will repent, and the priests of God in Jerusalem don't, do they have more to answer for? I think they do. The, uh, the Queen of the South, do you know who that is? No. Okay. There was, um, a little bit there. that is, is, often she's referred to as the Queen of Sheba. Oh, she, yes. Sheba okay. was okay. in the what is currently the nation of Yemen, down south of Saudi Arabia. Okay. And uh, she was incredibly wealthy. And she heard that Solomon, who at that point was the uh, priest king of Israel was incredibly wise. And so she came to kind of ally herself with him because Israel was powerful at that moment. And uh, he was David's son. David's son? Solomon? No. Sorry. He's just a priest. I, I, I'm getting my history mixed up. Anyway, she comes to see Solomon and uh, he preaches to her and she embraces the Israeli God. So Yemen has a kind of a Jewish influence on it these days. Anyway, well, I assume. Anyway, uh, it, what's notable is about the Queen of Sheba is that it's noted historically by all kinds of other peoples because she made this personal trek with all of her entourage into Israel and she was so intensely wealthy that as her, her, her caravan came through towns, they spent money and gave gifts to the local people and uh, bought lavishly and they spread gold around all over the place because they were just lousy with gold coins. And they spent so much money going in to see Solomon and coming back that it depressed the economy. Everybody had so much gold that gold stopped being worth as much as it was when she came through because it was just too easy to get, you know. So, uh, which is, it takes a lot of gold to do that. So uh, that's kind of the story on the Queen of Sheba. Well, Christ is referring to the, it's a story that they know. So he's saying that if she, the Queen of Sheba, who's this pagan queen, is going to travel all the way to Israel to see Solomon and then embrace his wisdom, and these priests aren't listening to the son of David, they have things to answer for. Then he makes this really interesting metaphor about 
a spirit leaving a man and the house being cleaned and then coming back. Uh, Nineveh was cleaned out. God cleaned up the Ninevites. God cleaned up Sheba. Uh, they embraced God and God moved in. But here we have these priests that haven't embraced God. And they're an empty vessel. Now they've been cleaned out. All of the pagans are gone, but they're empty. And so what's going to happen? Not one pagan is going to come, a pagan god is going to come back, but seven more. They're going to become even more evil than they ever were before because man has to, we have to serve a master, you know, and so what master are we serving? And so that's why he kind of condemns it as the wicked generation. And then this chapter ends on kind of a, an odd note. Uh, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my God in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What does that mean? Yeah, I got, I got this here to cover those verses there. Yeah. Um, it says ancient society placed great emphasis on, on faithfulness to blood relatives. Um, Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 48 through 50 must have sounded quite foreign to the crowd. He, might, he seemed to be breaking, breaking with tradition and disowning his family. But notice, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't deny that the woman and the men at the door were his family. He merely pushed beyond the normal understanding of family to a larger reality, the, the claims of spiritual kinship. This new family included anyone who does the will of the Father in heaven in no way was Jesus denying the value or benefits of solid family relationships? Yeah. Um, so remember that his apostles aren't with him. Yeah. He's preaching by himself. Yeah. So he doesn't have these three guys standing in front of him keeping the line of the crowd back. He doesn't have room. You know, that I, if you've got 12 guys helping you preach, they're managing the crowd and telling people where to sit and giving you some room so there's visibility and keeping, you know, the rowdy ones away until the right time so that you can finish with your point. Well, he doesn't have all of that. So these people have rushed in close to him and he is teaching, but it's up close and personal and you, in order to get to Christ, you've got to elbow your way through the crowd. Well, he's surrounded by all these people, and he's healing them and teaching, and he's working. Uh, and here comes Mary and one of the brothers. I'm betting it was James. I just think it was James. Anyway, uh, they show up, and they can't get to him because they're way back in the back of the crowd, and there's no apostle to help them through, and it's, there's nowhere you know, for the family to sit. They're back there, and they want to talk to Jesus. So in... 
in the Gospel of Kevin, what they did is that they find a five-year-old because he can like, he's low and small, and they say, go tell them that we're here. And then he goes through the legs, you know, which is, used to be my job when I was five years old, and, uh, and go up to the front and tell them, you know, this message. Hey, tell him mama's here, and he needs to wrap this up and, and come talk to mama. Yeah, yeah, and, and they do respect family, but Christ uses this as a teaching moment. You know, he's in the middle of preaching, and he gets this message from Mama, and uh, he says, "You know, you guys are my family too, because they've embraced Christ, and when you embrace Christ, Christ, you know, your your sins are forgiven. You become an adopted spiritual brother to Christ." And, and so we're Christ's family as believers. And so he makes that point. He's not disavowing his family. He's just teaching them that they're family too. And to be fair, Mama was probably being a little pushy and he needed to finish up his sermon before he goes out and talks to her. You know, there's a little decorum to be dealt with. Yeah, yeah I think that's what this was just talking about. It wasn't, he wasn't Right. And as I continue to pick on Mary, which will probably get me in trouble with half the world, uh, at the wedding wedding of Cana, uh, Mary comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And this is before he begins his ministry. And Jesus says, what's it to me? My time hasn't come yet. What what are you talking about? I I can't handle this. And she ignores that and turns around to one of the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do, like a good Jewish mother would, completely manipulates him, you know. And then he goes ahead and changes the water to wine because he's a good son, and Mama told him to. She, Mary can be a little pushy, a little pushy. Sometimes I think she, she missed the point just a little bit. Now, she was there and talked to the angel, and she knows who he is, but still, she's Mama. You know, and expects to uh, get her way. That's what you get when you raise a child. You kind of feel in charge after that. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, that is all of the babbling that you're going to get from me on chapter 12. Uh, we will look at chapter 13 uh, next, is it next week? next week? It's next week, Father's Day. We're out on Father's Day. Okay. Well, the next time that we actually have class, we will be working on chapter 13. And I hope that Lester is out there listening on the radio. Uh, Since he's not answering my text messages, don't know if he's even alive. And uh, we will continue with Matthew, which goes on for a few chapters. Okay, with that, uh, signing off.